This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We love getting behind the scenes on different things. Getting information you wouldn't normally have. It's the old Wizard of Oz thing. You look behind the curtain and, oh, so that's, that's how that works. And... Our next guest gives us as behind the scenes as you can get when it comes to scouting the game of hockey. And we're going to look toward the NHL entry draft tonight. But please welcome Mark Edwards from HockeyProspect.com. Mark, how's the day going? I'm good, Mike. It's been a while with uh, the shutdown in March. I haven't seen you for a little while in the old rink there. But uh, a little strange, but all is good, and the draft has finally arrived. Yeah, we've waited a little while. For anybody who's unfamiliar with the NHL entry draft, normally the Stanley Cup is awarded very early on in June, and then the draft takes place very late in June, and then the off season goes and there are development camps, and you roll right into a new season. Yesterday was the anniversary of Sidney Crosby making his NHL debut. Well, now we have the first round of the draft happening tonight. The other rounds of the draft will happen tomorrow, and... Don't worry, this is Tuesday, and tomorrow is Wednesday. That is happening. But Mark and his staff put together a black book each and every year. And I mentioned the the behind-the-scenes stuff. If you want to see actual scouting notes, that's what you get from this. You also get scouting reports on players. You can know more about players than, Mark, I don't know, maybe they know about themselves. Sometimes I think that's the case. Uh, it's a it's a fun year, um, and obviously this year was really strange because we got shut down in, in March and had to turn to video to finish off the uh, the scouting for the season. Uh, normally, there's a World Under 18 Championship in April, uh, which you know is hosted by different countries. This year, it was actually going to be hosted uh, by the United States, and it was going to be uh, right in Ann Arbor, so a little bit closer to home than some trips overseas to see it. Uh, we didn't get that. You know, COVID hit uh, a month before that tournament was to take place, and that was canceled along with, obviously, everything else. Um, and then we didn't get playoff hockey, and we didn't get uh, the NHL draft com- combine, which is the first week of June usually, and we get to see the players go through the testing and, and uh, you know, even just getting their official size, height, weight measurements uh, for me is is always a fun one. There's always two or three players where I'm really curious to see their actual height, weight, because uh, some of the teams get pretty liberal um, with those measurements, as, as you know. I don't know if to tell you that. But at the same time, that that's a real interesting part of scouting because those sorts of things can matter. If somebody is, and it's strange to say, but Dale Hunter sometimes has this line about players, and I've heard it in basketball too, where, okay, well, that guy maybe didn't make it. How come? And they'll hold their fingers about an inch apart and put them on the top of their head and say, needed that other inch, believe it or not, needed that other inch. It's it's strange how much that can matter, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously now we are we are in a little bit of a different era where some smaller players are making it. I mean, you just never would have seen, you know, five, this many 5'9 D-men and 5'10 D-men in the league. And, and obviously we've got the Quinn Hughes and uh, Kale McCars of the world now that are just outstanding um, so that, and that's a good thing. Uh, I like that, but, um, you know, you still got to be when you're smaller, you got to be really good. You can't have, uh, those extra little flaws that maybe a big guy can get away, uh, get away with. And, you know, if you're small and, and you can't skate, it's, it's, I mean, a 
literally for us, you, you go into that kind of no draft grade pretty quick, and you got to do a lot to get out of uh, get out of that grade because um, you know when you start looking through uh, the history of of small guys who can't skate, there's just not too many of them playing in the NHL. Let's talk about the black book that you put together each and every year. When you went into this, you know, it's been very similar from year to year. What was the goal? What did, what did you want to make sure that you accomplished? Yeah, so just a really quick Cold Notes version. Um, I was coaching uh, forever. I actually started in London, coaching some house league in London, and then I moved out of London in 2004, I think, uh, back into the Toronto area, and I started coaching there. And I had Wayne Simmons, um, and Wayne had never even played AAA hockey. Um, until he was with us that particular year. And I just started to see some different players and, and him being one of them that to me were kind of going under the radar and getting missed. So I just kind of created this website that I thought could help maybe some kids get some scholarships uh, south of the border, that sort of thing. And, you know, the real sort of version, like, you know, it just snowballed and morphed into what it is today. And this is uh, the start of year 16 uh, now, and it's... Now we cover the, the Quebec Major Junior Draft, the OHL Draft, and obviously the NHL Draft. And here's Wayne winding down his career. Uh, so it's, it's uh, and then the the black book was not the original. We we called it an NHL Draft Guide, which we kind of still put out. But the draft book, uh, black book, I started in 2012, and really I just wanted to simplify and just make it more data packed. No pictures, no fancy stuff. Just here's the reports, here's the rankings here's game reports, here's the profiles. And it was all just piled into the biggest book, and it's going to be as big as the information we have from that particular year, and away we go. And so um, I can honestly say this 2020 version is is uh, my favorite yet. I think it's our best yet. Uh, we've got some profiles that are upwards of just 3,000 words all on their own. Uh, we try and get into discussing the why um, a player is ranked where he is. And, and so... Maybe you've seen other lists and you think our list is, is crazy, um, but at least you'll know when you read uh, the profile, you know why we, we put the player where we did. Mark Edwards joining us from HockeyProspect.com. That's where you can find the Black Book if you're interested, and you can subscribe and, and take advantage of all kinds of information throughout the hockey season as you look at the up-and-comers in the sport. Mark, let's look at tonight's NHL entry draft and maybe take a, a quick local spin through it. Alexi Lafreniere seems to be the consensus number one pick, but in terms of some local ties, the London Knights have some players who are ranked and are expected to go. Maybe not tonight. Maybe some of them will go tomorrow. But Luke Evangelista becomes this story where in his first year, he didn't score a goal. And then this past season, he started off with a hat trick against Kingston. And then he seemed to rocket up the draft rankings. What is it about Luke Evangelista that scouts like? Yeah, he's an interesting one because I don't do a ton of OHL draft scouting myself anymore. Our, our guys do it, and I I try and get out here and there um, to a few games and try and watch like the, the top guys uh, and just weigh in with my two cents. But uh, Evangelista was an Oakville kid. I live in Oakville now, um, and I happened to see him uh, a few times and, and kind of weighed in and kind of put up my stamp on the rankings in that particular OHL draft year, and we slotted him into uh, towards the end of the first round, I think. Um, and obviously he had a bit of a slow start last year. Um, 
just kind of crack in the lineup, and I think a lot of it was strength issues, and even the start of this year. But uh, he was a player that I, I, I obviously did like uh, coming into the league, and, and still thought that he could make kind of a uh, flick the switch moment, and, and it, it kind of happened as we got towards the Christmas, I believe, and uh, some players left the lineup, he moved up the lineup, got a little more ice time, and um, you know, I said I said to Mark Hunter, <laughs> Hunter we were talking one day, and. They're totally different players, but the usage and just some of the, the hockey IQ reminds me a little bit of Bo Horvat in the role that, that Dale trusted him with. And that's a big deal to me, um, apart from just what I see myself on the ice. Just the fact that he was uh, that player that, that uh, Dale entrusted into those important minutes. Um, I thought he was outstanding on the penalty kill, and I thought he adapted well to his line mates, depending on who he played with. Uh, you know, with McMichael, he kind of more just, here, I'll get the puck to him. And then when he was playing with Stranges, uh, the two of them did a little bit more of the work and kept the puck. And, he, you know, he kept the puck himself a little bit more and, and tried to be the finisher. So uh, I think he's an incredibly smart player. He's still got to get stronger, but he's got, obviously, time. Um, he's got some skill. Um, and he's kind of just for us right at the start of, so we've got him as an A grade, which is a first-round grade. Uh, but he's just kind of at the start of where we maybe not projecting a top six NHL uh, forward, but but you know a, a good uh, more third line type uh, type of forward. So uh, I'm not sure. Um, there's different you know all the scouts I talk to and travel with a lot of varied opinions on him. Uh, so I don't know where he'll he'll end up going. If there's a chance, maybe late first tonight, I think. But um, I think more you know, in the first half of uh, tomorrow if I was putting my own money down. Mark Edwards from HockeyProspect.com. Mark, as we kind of speed through the London Knights, you mentioned Tony Ostrangis. He's a guy that could find his name called. How about someone who has not spent that much time in North America, but a Kirill Steklov, certainly not expected to go tonight, but is he a guy that is on radars right now? Yeah, it's funny you bring him up because – He's one uh, that really he wasn't impressing me all that much up until Christmas. And uh, I get Mark Hunter all fired up and try and get him riled up as much as I can. And whenever I see him, just say, oh, you know, he's, just, he's, not, he's not close. And even if I thought he was close, I just get him riled up. And, and uh, then, you know, the, the calendar switched into January. And, uh, you know, you see him a ton more than me. I just thought that he just looked like it, it was like he, he got comfortable and got more confident. I thought he's played a lot more poised game and started controlling the puck and, and handling the puck and skating the puck more. Um, you know, he by no means is he going to be a future power play guy in the NHL, but just to see him carry the puck a little bit more, gain the offensive blue on his own. Um, he's a huge kid. He's not physical. He, he in fact, probably took more hits than he gave out. So that, that's got to change or he's, he's not going to go anywhere. But I like, I like the, the upside, um, I like the development that I saw this year. And some people don't realize they come over and, you know, some of these Euros and they're a long way from home and they don't know the language, some of them. And it's a big adjustment to start the year here um, and get used to things. And, and I think that's what we saw from him maybe. But uh, just took a little while to get his feet wet. He played really well uh, internationally when he had his own country's jersey on. Um, and I just thought he got better and better. And, and by all, you know, all accounts, you know, we've got him ranked as a later round pick, but, uh, I would probably feel pretty good about, um, 
taking him as a late rounder with the the upside and and what you know he might be able to turn out to be just maybe a third pairing D man in the NHL, but he. He played smart, not too many mental errors, and I really like seeing that. And then, like I said, just a little bit of growth in his game late in the year before we got shut down that, that gave me some uh, kind of hope that maybe he can really progress as we go into this year. We're talking with Mark Edwards from HockeyProspect.com, and Mark's being nice enough, as he always is, to offer up 15% off a black book if you use the promo code STUBS. So check out HockeyProspect.com. Check out the black book. If you are a big hockey fan and love watching things like the draft, this gives you an opportunity to even save money. So 15% off if you use the promo code STUBS. Mark, as we close out, is there one player that you're maybe interested to see where he goes tonight, where he falls in the first round? Yeah, there's quite a few, actually, but one that sticks out is just down the road uh, from you in, in Sarnia, Jacob Perot, um, because he is one of the most talented players. I, I, I would say a top five or six as far as his skill level. Uh, he's a really smart player, um, really good vision, I, I think really underrated as a playmaker, uh, but just had some, some, just some inconsistency in the work ethic department. So he's down at 16 on our list, um, but I, I really was impressed with uh, the skill level he brought, uh, game in and game out. Um, and if the work ethic just gets a little bit more consistent, I'm talking about just something simple like, uh, you know, back checking and just getting a little bit lazy on that once in a while, that sort of thing. Uh, but when you talk about just talent level amongst his peers here in the, the first round, he's right up with the best of them. We'll listen for that name and everybody else coming up tonight. Mark, congratulations on putting together what you have done with the Black Book, and thanks for sharing some insight with us. Enjoy the draft tonight. Be safe. Yeah, you too. Enjoy, and hopefully we'll see you uh, sooner than later. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Inside a rink. Hockey fans want to be inside rinks as soon as possible. That's Mark Edwards from HockeyProspect.com. We were talking on the show not too long ago about me getting a dog because this was basically 13, 14 years of not owning a dog as a family. One of my children has now moved out, and now we get a dog? Are you kidding? But we had busy schedules with the kids, and I didn't feel it was fair to a dog to have us leaving all the time and the dog not being able to come because whether it was basketball and track or a long time ago it was Irish dance, we were doing some serious traveling with the kids' activities. They were all kind of high level. And so I didn't feel it was fair. But now here we are in a pandemic and like so many other people, I thought, you know what? Now is the time because we can stay home and we can be here for the dog and we can train the dog properly. And so as soon as I said the word train, I got a note that came in from Josie and it says, uh, Mike, wondering if you can help me out. You were talking about getting a dog and training a dog. I figured I had done a very good job with my dog until he was neutered. He hasn't peed in the house in months, but since he has come home from the doctor after a little bit of a snip, he's having all kinds of troubles peeing in the house. Is there anything you can help me out with? And I thought, okay, well, probably because we happen to be lucky enough to have Melissa Millett in London 
and Melissa is one of the best animal trainers anywhere. We talked before the break about how she had trained the cats for the Pet Cemetery remake, how Melissa actually was able to train a deaf dog who is making their way through Hollywood right now because of the ability to work on stunt scenes and things like that. It's absolutely phenomenal to see what Melissa can do. She is with In Dogs We Trust, and she joins us now. Melissa, thanks so much for taking some time. No, thank you so much for having me on. I think I hear a dog barking in the background. <laughs> that wouldn't be unusual, um, although we try to discourage that. I like, I like my dog <laughs> quiet, my music loud. Very nice. Well, we maybe have an opportunity just to talk about training in general because there are ways to do it. Everybody will think, oh, okay, I can I can figure this out. Uh, I'm a whole lot smarter than a dog. And then you realize very quickly, uh, I, I'm not sure that that's completely true. The dog can send you for a whole bunch of loops. But maybe we can deal with Josie's question first. Have you ever heard of that before where a dog has been neutered and then peeing in the house starts up again? Uh, I haven't heard of that specifically with the connection to the neutering. There's a lot of connections to not neutering and the dog's marks, but there's actually more to urinating in the house than you'd think. Um, it can happen. Now, could it, it could be connected to the neutering. Um, medical issues is something that I'm not aware of, but behavioral is definitely my thing. And some of the things that can happen, it could, the neutering could have correlated with the cold weather. And when there's cold weather and you have a short-coated breed, a lot of times they go, you know what, I'm, I'm not going outside. The basement over here is going to do. Or, you know, you don't use that dining room too much. That looks like a great spot for a washroom. And there, so the change in temperature uh, causes behavioral changes in terms of eliminating in the house. Another thing that actually is um, related to urinating in the house is stress and anxiety. Um, so if your dog is an anxious dog, is a is a stressed dog, um, that could cause an increase in urination in the house. I got so scared I peed my pants. And dogs are all different levels of sensitivity. If this dog was a sensitive dog already and perhaps the neutering and the pain was triggering, um, it could cause the dog to eliminate in the house. And anxiety actually increases at maturity. Between six months and one and a half years old, a lot of people will notice that their dog is suddenly reactive or suddenly nervous of things. And that's about the time when we neuter. So, you know, those are some interesting things. It's usually about asking more questions and being a private investigator. Hey, that's good stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, let's stay on the house training and keeping the dog from eliminating in the house because it can happen. People might wonder, well, if if they go once in one spot, does that mean they're going to go there again in that spot simply because smell is such a part of the dog's life? Does that have any issue? Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely. You have to get rid of the smell. Depending upon the age, when you have a young puppy, you, you should probably go without area rugs for a little while because it's they, they're attracted to porous surfaces. Um, always avoid puppy pads because puppy pads actually train the dog to urinate on porous surfaces. And then they search out area rugs. And that's something that you have to get the smell out of. But you want to get a pheromone scent remover or something like Nature's Miracle um, and put that over the scent every time they go. And in order to house train them properly, you should, if you have a young dog, you should live in a prison of baby gates. <laughs> You know, and if you have a Yorkie Chihuahua, get really comfortable with those baby gates. 
because management is called and preventing access to those areas is super key for house training. All right. So in other words, baby gates close off the areas the dog can get to, making their area a little bit smaller because dogs don't really like to go in an area they're going to hang out in, right? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's harder in an open concept house. It's harder if, if you have, like, let's say, uh, a, a not so much access, easy access to the door. But having the dog communicate that they need to go outside is really key. So basically what I do is anytime the dog passes by the exit to outside, I jump up and let the dog out so that they can make the connection on how to ask. And that's another missing link is that if they don't know how to ask, if you speak to a bunch of dog owners, they'll tell you that there could be various ways for the dog to communicate. Some dogs will do a dance, you know, running back and forth. It lets you know you have to go. Some dogs will stand by the door. Some dogs will bother you and lick you to let you know that they have to go. But teaching them how to ask to get outside is really a great missing link. A lot of people do the bell um, where you teach the dog to, to go outside with the bell. And some people just take their dogs outside nonstop. One thing I would ever want to do is I would never want to encourage barking to go outside because I don't want to encourage barking in any way, shape, or form. Sure. Melissa Miller joining us. In Dogs We Trust. You can visit indogswetrust.ca as we talk a little bit about pet training. Melissa, how about treats? Because they are very accessible. There are all different kinds, and we see treats being used to help train dogs. How do treats work into training? Should they be in in all elements of it or, or just some elements of it? Yeah, I mean, treats are so under underrated it's it's always a question how can i move away from treats and uh i would say it works so effectively that really the the idea behind using treats is that you reinforce your dog end goal i always like to use this this example you know pizza man delivers a pizza i put my dogs in a stay i walk over open the door pay they leave and when they're done with no treats inside i say I release the dog and bring the dog back to the food bag to give them something. It's a great way to use treats because you have to continually reinforce. But that's way down the line in your training. If you have a brand new dog, you should carry treats a lot of the times for the first year of their of their life. Um, and that's if you adopt an adult dog. If you would have a puppy, I would throw the treats in my pocket for two years. And then you're instilling habits and then you can fade the reinforcer. But anytime before two years of age, you're dealing with a baby, you're dealing with a dog that has the a, has the a, uh, mental capacity of a two year old when they're grown, and they don't become adults until they're two and a half, three. And so, why you know if you if you lose the motivation of food, you may have to punish or 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 uh, get angry or create consequences when food is such a valuable reinforcer. It works so effectively. Uh, why give your dog it for free and make them earn it throughout the day? So I would say. Um, definitely don't worry about the stigma. Um, you can fade it if you think about how to do it. And the way that you do that is first you show it to them so they work. Second, you keep it in your pocket and you ask them to perform and you feed them out of your pocket. And then third, you put the treats up in a bowl somewhere accessible and you ask the dog to perform and you get it from the bowl. And last, you give it to them sometimes. And sometimes is actually a stronger reinforcement than definitely because, you know, people hang out in front of slot machines. They don't hang out in front of vending machines. They want to they <laughs> know, is this the time? Do I get it? 
That's an amazing analogy. We're talking with Melissa Miller from In Dogs We Trust. If you do have any questions, you can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We did get one that just came in. But in terms of the treats and making use of treats, do you use actual treats? Or some people will say, well, I just grab some food, some kibble, and that becomes a treat. To a dog, is there a difference between those two things? That's a really, really good question, and that's a really important question for training. Uh, your pay scale is going to change based on your, your ask and your environment. So when I'm working at home, absolutely kibble is a great, uh, it's a great reward. But when you get outside and you have something that's readily available at home and that's readily available in the bowl and you're using that to compete against the distraction of squirrels and trees, it's, it's not going to cut it unless you have a lab. So you should increase your pay scale when you get outside. And, and so, Pet owners will do that by going to the store and grabbing treats. Professional dog trainers will do that by saying that their thought is kibble is medium value. Pet store treats, or sorry, kibble is low value. Pet store treats are medium. And real dog food like chicken or hot dogs is high. And so when I get outside, I want my dog to find me reinforcing. So I'm going to go out with high value treats to start. And then I work my way down. So my dogs can work for kibble in most environments if they're my do- if they're adults and they've been around. But when I, but you bet you when I'm doing a movie, we walk around, you see us with a cooler, and we got a selection of meats in that cooler because I'm going to ask the dog to do the same action to get the shot 25 times in a row, which is unrealistic. So I'm going to pay, you know, so the dog gets paid well. Wow. So, definitely your pay scale should change and don't be afraid of using that human food like something like real chicken that's better than the kibble you're feeding your dog and it's okay to eat that because that's another thing that people wonder about you know you don't want to be feeding them all kinds of table scraps we understand that but are there certain types of human food that like you said that that are okay yeah yeah there's i mean there's lots of human foods that you should avoid um you know as we know great chocolate but human foods like uh, like um, the uh, um, meats Be like and chicken whatnot. meats yeah meats and things like that is uh, not those are the good ones. Well, then that's something to certainly keep in mind. Okay, let's get to a question. Um, my dog appears to be over-socialized. Every time we go on a walk and he sees another dog or a person, it's like he has to say hi to them every time, and he's so strong, it's hard for me to do anything other than hold him in place. How can I get my pup to want to greet people or dogs less? I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a very non-pandemic behavior. Uh, Melissa, any suggestions yeah. on that? You know what's really uh, interesting about that is that that, that – I get that question a lot. The big thing that you want to do is you want to teach your dog to mind their own business. So they shouldn't be allowed to say hello to everybody. And that in itself is what creates the issue. As you're walking down the street, your dog should only be allowed to say hello to two out of every 10 people, 20% of people. And they only should be allowed to say hello when they're minding their own business so they get to say hi. If they're straining to say hi, then then they don't get to say hi because you're not going to reinforce that behavior. So if you treat your dog like a service dog, your dog can still be sociable and wonderful, but they learn to mind their own business. And the misconception is that your dog should be socialized and meet everybody, and it creates a dog that feels entitled to meet everybody. So at this point, you want to you want to start taking your dog places. 
at a distance that they won't bother the people and not allow them to say hi. And do you use rewards in teaching them that they're doing appropriate behavior and in, in not trying to get to everybody? Yes, yeah, since people are highly reinforcing, you want to use a high pay to teach them to leave people alone. And so maybe paint that picture for us, if you could, Melissa. Let's say, okay, let's say we're both walking dogs. You're coming from one corner. I'm coming from the other corner. We can see the dogs starting to come together. Mine starts really pulling and <laughs> wants to get to your dog and is at the end of its leash and, and is trying to get there. What should I be doing in that instance? Um, you're going to, well, we teach everything in a series of progressive steps. Step one, I want you to teach your dog how to focus on you and find you reinforcing with nothing around Step two, I want you to start at a distance from people that your dog can still respond and then slowly decrease the gap. And it's not that you can't have your dog around people, but um, your expectation should never exceed your effort. So if you're expecting the dog to uh, mind their own business around people, but you haven't done the foundation, then you, you won't get it. So you have to go to a distance from the people where you can or with less people. Um, and then you're probably going to be looking at equipment. Um, you could use a no-pull harness or a gentle leader. is really fantastic at controlling the dog's head. But then there's some homework with the gentle leader as well to teach them to, you know, mind, uh, to, to enjoy. And you can find that online under desensitization of the gentle leader or desensitization of the halty. Okay. As always, Melissa, there is a reason that you are called on to train dogs that go on to movie careers. You are the best. Thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. Yes, no problem. Thank you for having me. I love talking about dogs. I love it. Maybe we can dogs. do it again. For sure. Okay. Thanks, Melissa. Keep safe. You too. Thank you. That is Melissa Millett from In Dogs We Trust. You can check them out online at indogswetrust.ca. So we just dabbled in a, a couple of little things about training dogs and how it works. Dogs, you hear our work? Well, you know, you put in the work, you get a well-behaved dog out of the end of it. That's, uh, that's kind of how it works out. But Melissa's got some amazing stories. We've had her on before on Global News Radio talking about things like training the cats for Pet Cemetery. And two of those cats, if you're, it's almost Halloween. If you're looking for a movie, the remake to Pet Cemetery stands up a whole lot better than the original. If you've tried to watch that, it's, it's not, it's okay, but not really. And so maybe you want to check out the the new one because that has two cats who are actually from London. Now, it's Church is the same cat in the movie, but Church was played by four different cats in that movie. So two of them from London. One of our favorite questions to ask on London Live is, why do you do it that way? And one of our least favorite answers is, because that's the way we've always done it. No, stop that. Don't at least take a look and say, could we have done this a little bit differently? Uh, yeah, maybe. If we look at vaccine transportation, if we look at organ transportation especially, there are ways that we have organs that are used for transplant that have been done for a while, but haven't really been changed since, what, the, the late 60s? Really? We haven't come up with a better way since the late 60s? 
there has to be a better way. Well, guess what? A team of researchers from Western University has come up with something that may be a better way because they were able to look and say, uh, what are you doing? Yeah, we're, Well, we're doing it the same way we've done it since 1967 or whenever it was. Uh, maybe we could... Maybe we could make things better. Uh, joining us right now is Dr. Cameron Siddiqui from the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering at Western University. Dr. Siddiqui, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for me. Uh, thanks for having me in this show. Well, it's great to have you here. Let's talk a little bit first off about how things like organs for transplant or vaccines have been transported. In the movies, sometimes we'll see this this little case. This it's almost looks like a, a big plastic lunchbox, and that's what's used in the movies. How about in real life? How far from the truth are those? Uh, it's actually it's not that far off from what they're shown in the movie in, in a sense that it's still they use like ice eye or ice water bath to basically keep the organ or vaccine cool. So for for organs, for example, they have this sort of the ice water bath that is used to keep the organ cool. They, there are some other components which are added basically to circulate perfusion fluid and so on. But in terms of the actual regulating the temperature, so they try to keep the organ around between four to five degrees Celsius. And the, the approach they use is basically it's like an ice water bath to to, main, to basically keep the organ cool. And the big challenge is that the temperature is not really controlled. It's not regulated it just we have ice water to make sure that somehow the organ stays cool, and that's a typical way it's it's transported. Uh, no wonder it for, sounds like it comes from the late '60s. I mean, ice water and uh, let's hope, let's hurry. So, what happens now in that you've looked to make some changes to the way this is done? Okay, yeah. So, so what we have done is basically so we come up with this this technology where. We still, the, I think the big difference between the, the current practice and what we're doing is that we are controlling the temperature now. Okay. So we can precisely control the temperature. We monitor the temperature, log the temperature to ensure that the organ is maintained at a certain temperature. Now, there's some research that has been conducted at the university hospital and I think at some other uh, uh, institutions around the world as well. And they, are, they have found is that keeping the organ at four or five degrees Celsius is not necessarily the best temperature for the for the the long-term preservation of the organ but rather it may need to vary depending on some some therapeutic treatments that they want to do and now ice water is a good uh, sort of method at least to keep it cool if you want to keep it like four or close to zero degrees celsius but say if you need to uh, transport organ or you want to vary the temperature of organ while transportation for and raise it up to say 10 degrees or 15 degrees celsius Obviously, ice water bath is not going to work in that case. Yeah. So the technology that we have is basically it allows to regulate the temperature, whatever the temperature you want to maintain, or during transportation, you can raise or lower the temperature for a certain period of time. So, so that is an added benefit that you're not only controlling the temperature, we have the options through the Wi-Fi, through the web option, and we are adding, try, adding the cellular option. So it means that even... The team could monitor while the organ is being transported at what is the actual temperature of the organ. And if there is a need to ramp up or ramp down the temperature for some specific uh, uh, treatments, uh, they have the option as well. That's fantastic. We're talking with Dr. Cameron Siddiqui, a Western engineering professor, and we're talking about making some changes to the way that 
organs for transplant or vaccines are carried and we're going to have to make sure that any vaccines that are produced for COVID-19 one day last a while, get to where they have to go. Could this technology assist there as well? Yeah, so I think, so yeah, if you look from the vaccine side, I think, so So vaccine, it most of the vaccines, you know, they have to be maintained in a very tight temperature range. So typically, you know, I would say like a significant number of vaccines have to be stored during transportation between 2 to 8 degrees Celsius. Uh and typically, the transportation that is used is they use ice packs. Okay, it's like a sort of like a lunchbox idea, but you know you have ice packs. It's all packed to make sure that to keep the vaccines cool. But again, the big challenge is that there is no control of temperature, and often in many cases, not even monitoring the temperature. So, a big challenge that was actually identified by the World Health Organization is that often a major challenge is not to keep the temperature of the vaccine cooler, for example, keep it lower than eight, but rather a bigger challenge is how we can prevent the vaccine should not get into the freezing, uh, freezing site. So the freeze damage has been identified by World Health Organization as a, as a bigger challenge. And what happens that when the temperature exceeds either limits, it impacts its viability. So it, it, they are not as effective. So I think that's why the precise temperature control is is really critical thing, and I think now with this with, with this COVID and the vaccines, it, the expectations are that they also need to be transported within a very precise temperature range. So, so our technology because we can regulate the temperature and whatever that temperature range is. So, with the, our technology is very, you know, you can say the the worst star in a sense that it is not bounded as to keep it cool. If you want to keep it at whatever the temperature that is good to maintain, you can maintain it. It's like it's say, like say maintain at five degrees Celsius, maintain at minus four degrees, maintain at 20 degrees Celsius, 30 degrees Celsius of whatever that you want to transport or technology basically allows to main, regulate that temperature during transportation and without using any active uh, electrical power. The control system that we have is just basically powered by a small uh, you know, the, the rechargeable battery uh, on board uh, the unit. Right. Well, how, I guess, where do we stand in terms of creating these units? Are they set to be manufactured or do you need approval on different things? Yeah, so at at this stage, uh, so we have actually uh, 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 developed, like, so we started this project, you know, we had this um, second generation now we are at the third generation which is actually a device in a form that uh could be utilized as a as as a potential uh the you know the 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 unit to carry vaccines for example uh so so what we have to do is now we are actually doing com- uh, like a thorough sort of like you know the part of the uh the benchmarking the data as well as you know how we can try to improve its uh, its, its usability because you know it has to be user friendly that the user should be able to easily kind of uh, use those, you know, the the, the passive, the the heat source and the heat sink, uh, right. how they can control the temperature or set the temperature and so on, the monitor temperature. So, so we are at the stage where I think we are basically trying to basically polish and finalize those things and having all the benchmarks. So once it's done, then we are expecting that maybe by by early next year, hopefully we have something that would has a potential to be you know, get to the market. Hopefully, we're going to find the the right partners to work with us on the commercialization of this technology. 
Right. Well, Dr. Siddiqui, congratulations on reinventing the mousetrap, because it seems like the way that this has been done is as old as the mousetrap. And you've done it, and it may make a very big difference for transportation of something that is very valuable to us, like a vaccine, or other things that are already valuable to us, like organs for transplant. Please keep safe, and please keep up the great work, and good luck finding those partners. Yeah, thank you very much. That is Dr. Cameron Siddiqui, who is in the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering at Western University. So taking something like the ice box, essentially, that transports organs and being able to allow it to be temperature sensitive. How has it not been? How has this not happened before now? Think of what we've done for coolers for beer. It's remarkable to see how many companies look what yeti did in revolutionizing keeping your beer cold somehow we have prioritized keeping our beer cold over keeping organs for transplant cold now hey you know yetis are fantastic and i'm not saying that company should have gone in a different direction but this is this is just a case of how come we're focused in more on on how coolers work and how coolies work than we are for what is transplanting or what is transporting transplanted organs. That's, that's unbelievable. But it's now come back around where Dr. Siddiqui and his colleagues have made it happen. Since the late 60s, the technology has stayed the same. Take the organ or the vaccine, put some ice in it, put the lid on, transport it away. That's essentially what it's been. Now, hey, technology. Remarkable. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.